Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. It is the series finale. I guess you could call it that if you wanted to. It's uh, our time to put Raymond Chandler and his Marlowe adventures to rest. Uh, he has definitely left a legacy, and uh, it'll carry on And through m so many books and films that mm -hmm. continue to get made, whether on his stories in particular or just influenced by him. So yeah, absolutely. we've done our work, our survey on him, and uh, this is the results, or sort of like, I guess, our breakdown of what we thought was the best mm. of the Raymond Chandler Philip Marlowe sweep. Yeah. Just like we did with the end of the Sherlock Holmes canon, we have ranked different categories that we've been going through this whole time, and we've, we've come to some favorites. I guess you could call it favorites, highlights along the Marlowe sweep. And, um, oh, nice hat. It's our Uncle Richard's, actually. It's his oh, Panama cool. hat. Nice one. Are you a tailor, by any chance? The tailor of Panama? <laughs> the tailor of Panama? No. Joshua good, Dwight though. Gordon, tailor of Panama with a Panama hat. For those who can't see, I am putting on a uh, Panama hat my uncle gave me, and it's pretty It's pretty cool. It is a nice looking hat. You can tell it's not one of those cheapies. I mean, that's a proper good one. It's not a fedora, but I thought it would be Marlowe-esque, you know what I mean? Marlowe-esque. It is Marlowe-esque. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us here on this episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to go through the different uh, categories of our pipes and talk about Marlowe's adventures broadly, kind of what we liked from the entire series the last year and a bit of reading. And yeah, so we're, we're, quite, we're quite excited to take you along this journey with us. And it will, as I said, kind of tie a little bow around the Raymond Chandler work that we've been doing over the last little while. And at the end of our episode, we'll tell you a little bit about where Light in the Pipes is going next. But... We're going to begin with just a little discussion on Chandler's legacy, at least how we, us two readers, see it. Yeah, uh, after reading the Raymond Chandler novels, the, the seven that we did anyway, uh, you know, I think even before I knew about Raymond Chandler, I knew that he had, was a big influential force in noir and particularly film noir. So, I mean, w when you read books or see films that like... You know, you see movies like Blade Runner, for example. Uh, you see movies like uh, L.A. Confidential or any of the film noir of the 40s or 50s and the French New Wave films that, like, Breathless, that reinterpreted Chandler. You definitely see his, the influence of Chandler and Philip Marlowe even in those stories. And it still carries on to this day uh, in many different genres even, not just mystery, but the idea of, you know, like, one guy or one man doing everything he can to protect an innocent from harm in a very corrupt, brutal world is, I think, is what is the essence of what Chandler was trying to get at, mm -hmm. despite, you know, some of the sexism and racism and other repressed issues that are buried in his works. I think in the end that he did have that intention uh, to tell a story like that. And he saw himself like that as well in his own way. We, we all do. We all see ourselves as a hero. And I think that's what makes Marlowe relatable. And I think that's what makes Chandler's work easy for easy to inspire people. Mm -hmm. So that's how you can see a lot of his style and uh, themes in other other people's work, even up to this day. Yeah. For sure. And I mean, when we started this with The Big Sleep, we made a lot about the uh, the, the King George and the Dragon. Mm. And well, King George, right? Am, am I right, right in that? Or is it St. Uh, Saint George? St. Saint Saint George. George. Sorry, King yeah. George. That's different. All the, the American Revolution. Yeah. King George. Yeah. Mad King George. <laughs> I've got Hamilton songs running through my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. there was three King. There was like four or five King Georges in total, I believe. I, I can't recall. Right. Well, you, we're, we're talking about St. George and the Dragon. Yes. yes of and course, um, of course. we did talk about that character as it was kind of subtly pointed at, at, at in the start of all of this, the idea of the, the knight errant 
who in a world mm-hmm. of darkness is going out to sort of protect the innocent and needing to fight dirty to do that. And I think Marlowe has remained consistent uh, throughout this sweep as being that figure, um, often siding on or with uh, the gray and the shady aspects of society in order to, mm. to deliver a greater good. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the things that you could see, like, if you read any, pick up any comic book or, or watch mm. any action film or superhero film. I mean, I would say for the majority of, outside of, you know, guys like Superman and, you know, the more cosmic powered superheroes, I mean... Frank Miller was inspired uh, to create Batman, surely from Noir and the Chandler mm-hmm. influence. And Batman can be seen as the knight errant in his own way, the dark sure, knight, yeah. I guess you could say. Uh, so, I mean, that's an example of of that. And uh, look, at, look at even like, for example, like Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. I mean, how uh, Travis Bickle goes, does everything that he does in the end to save, you know, Jodie Foster's character, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's the same. It's an interesting th- it's, example. Yeah, it's taking that. Or in the first two uh, books of the sci-fi series, The Expanse, where you have this character who's a detective who wears a fedora even, and he ends up like d- basically doing everything he can to save to find out to find this young woman who has been something's terrible happened to her, and he wants to find out what happened to her, and he becomes obsessed with it, mm-hmm. and it ends up kind of in a way like saving humanity almost in his search to find her. Mm-hmm. So it, that's it. That's again the Chandler-esque influence, right? And you mentioned Josh a couple minutes ago, Blade Runner. Um, do you mm-hmm. see Do you see Rick Deckard in this sort of a light? Because he, uh, maybe the, maybe the maybe the Marlowe of playback, <laughs> but maybe the Marlowe of of playback. Yeah, yeah. The, Deckard is a enigmatic character uh, more so than Marlowe because, I mean, aside from the first version of the film where we get a hard boiled narration from mm-hmm. Deckard, mm-hmm. Uh, is that even considered canon anymore? Because essentially after what is it, the first or second director's cut that Ridley Scott made afterwards, uh, Decker becomes a completely enigmatic, non-stereotypical mm-hmm. character after that. Like, is he a replicant? I mean, who knows, yeah, right? who knows, so, that's right. But th- the first version of the film was clearly uh, made to inspire noir. Now, that was a studio choice, from what I understand. Right. And the, the, the narration that Ford did was done afterwards. But I more mentioned Chandler in the sense of, like, how even, like, in science fiction, they kind of got his the style of noir and how Chandler influenced that. Mm-hmm. But I would say Blade Runner is a more of an aesthetic example than it is, I guess, a thematic example of Raymond Chandler. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's more we- on the surface th- th- than anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. Uh, and of course, as we know, Chandler is not the first to play with these g- generic features, but you you might say that in his hands or in his note cards because <laughs> he likes to write that way in his note cards he really really structured and sculpted the strength of them these generic yes. conventions yeah i mean i know dashiell hammett had femme fatales for sure and other mystery writers who did black mask and, and their own novels separately as well um james n kane had femme fatales on top of that right mm-hmm. so i mean that wasn't a chandler invention per se and he definitely played with that trope in his novels I would say that the femme fatale thing was one of the ones that Chandler really didn't... I mean, I think he tried to add some dimension to them, but I don't think that was the strongest part of... of when I come and think of a Raymond Chandler novel, I don't think of the femme fatale as a big part. I find when they have a femme fatale in the Raymond Chandler story, it's sort of like he, he's just going for the tropes of the genre. He's doing a checklist. 
whereas I find other aspects of his writing and his character getting inside Marlowe's head and yeah. and the people around him and and just the, the theme of you know of the undying corruption of Los Angeles and just the system in general. Like I think those those uh, weigh the heaviest uh, in terms of what you know what you really uh, pick up as a reader, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like his femme fatales are just sort of, as I said, you know, their checklist for the noir genre, right? That 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 he did use, um, they were pretty good. I mean, they were they were more dimensional than other ones, but at the same time, they were also kind of like think of the little sister, a little bit disappointing too. Mm-hmm. Well, let's ask this question then, Josh, um, or pose it, I suppose, to see if, if we mm-hmm. can we can pick anything from it. Outside of these generic conventions that he used, the noir, which did pre-exist him, but which, as I think we're both saying, he really helped to strengthen. Outside of these hard-boiled conventions, what does what what does Raymond Chandler's Marlowe series offer readers? Because, like I said, when we studied The Long Goodbye, I think it's a story that can be appreciated for its literary merit outside of these generic conventions, but what will Marlowe offer readers uh, outside of the pulpy, noir, hard-boiled elements? I think it would offer a man in that context who you, you realize cares about the world that he lives in, and he's frustrated by it, and he wants the world to be a better place in his own mm-hmm. way, but he's also very cynical, and he's kind of given into what it's become, but he still hates it deep down. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, right? Sure. We all yeah. try to go and do our de- jobs day to day. And we, you know, we, we, at the end of the day or in the middle of our work shift, you know, we go on our phones and we read, you know, the news clips and all this sh- terrible sh- stuff happening. Mm-hmm. And then we try, and then, you know, and that affects us. And then, but then we have to get back to work and go back to our lives and go back to our families and our friends and pretend that doesn't happen and pretend everything is great, you know, but Really, in the end, it's basically, it's how we, uh, what's the word, compartmentalize our fears and our worries and our, uh, yeah, our fears and our worries and our anxieties mm-hmm. about the world as a whole. And, uh, and and seeing a character internalize that and tell you about it as he's going through his investigation, as he's going through the story and viewing people through that lens and, 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 and just the empathy that he portrays for even some of the most lowliest people, despite, you know, them des- not deserving it mm-hmm. or, you know, or him actually showing incredible, uh, uh, what was the term, like, like enmity or, you know, a lack of understanding of certain people as well that you expect that we expect would have sympathy kind of makes him a more complex character as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think also you got to put in Chandler's writing about how he gets into a man's head because I think he's speaking from his own experiences in, in Marlowe's head because you know as as it's clear you know we talked about in his biography that by the end of his life I think he really aspired to be Mar- Marlowe in in his own life or thought he was someone like that and so I think he got therapy in his own life by writing Philip Marlowe, because that's when he seemed to like really flourish as a person was when he was writing it. Right. And when he lost the one person that, that was like his anchor in terms of, uh, you know, keeping him afloat outside of the, of the writing, you know, that we could, when he couldn't make that type of connection again, Mm -hmm. I think that was sort of, you know, that was sort of like the beginning of his end, I guess you could say like, uh, that, that, uh, going down the rabbit hole of despair, you know, that he really ended up doing. Um, I mean, some would contest otherwise. I mean, there's stories, you know, that 
he could have handled his, his alcohol and maybe he just ended up getting pneumonia because that's a thing old people would catch and be killed from just like that, right? Yeah, so, I sure. mean, it's it's hard to say, like, if, you know, if he didn't catch pneumonia, would he just continue on? Would he have found happiness in his life afterwards? We don't know. So if, if people say, and I, I guess I'm going off on a tangent here because I was thinking about, you know, the last episode and how we talked about that. I don't want to say Chandler drank himself to death. I mean, he drank himself into a bad spot. But we don't know whether or not, like, that was the main cause of his death. You know what I mean? That's right. Like, yeah, sure. There, if that, it might have been a contributing factor, but mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. don't know. Like, how, if he hadn't caught pneumonia, as someone might do when they fly from London to Los Angeles, and then all of a sudden, you know, when they have a cold, like they always say, never fly when you have a cold, right? Because mm-hmm. it can make mm-hmm. things worse. And the air pressure, a whole bunch of things, it could have yeah. triggered that. And who knows? Plus. Anyways... I'm off on a tangent, but mm-hmm. you understand where I'm coming from. Like I, I do understand where you're coming from. Yeah, and yeah. I suppose the question the, the question stands the question <laughs> stands as I asked, like what what does Marlowe or what does Chandler offer readers who aren't interested in the pulp or the noir uh, genre? And I think well, I, that I think, I think I that search that. you did, and I agree with you. I, I believe that that search for um, that search for belonging in a world that you don't like or you find frustrating or you you strive to see improvement in is something that everybody can and probably should connect with and you know it that's the thing that does speak about this character when you read him is is just how desperately he wants the world to be different um and I, i'm not going to you know I'm not going to sing Kumbaya around a fire here and tell you that Marlowe's great and he's peaceful and he's, you know, world loving because I don't think he is, but he does believe in, he does believe in, in moral uprightness and he does want to see people treated properly uh, despite his behavior in playback. I think, which we, we talked enough about, he's a character that, that does want and does have appetites, but he ultimately, I think, wants people to treat and be treated properly and decently and he'll fight for that in, in this sort of corrupt world and you know if, if I can ask another broad sweeping question you know how how do you think Chandler viewed through the lens of his character the America in which he lived very cynical um yeah. by, especially by especially by that point by like the 1950s I mean I don't know what he thought about you know uh, McCarthyism and all that Cold War stuff going on there I can see I, I never really got any a political view of Chandler per se. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't think he was. He definitely wasn't pro. He wasn't a fascist. Uh, he didn't have. A, he didn't, wasn't really a right wing person. He was probably more of a moderate. I would say politically. Uh-huh. So the America that came, you know, post FDR, the Truman administration, and then going into Eisenhower's, you know, late Eisenhower age in the late fifties, the McCarthyism, as I mentioned. I think that kind of America probably scared him because America was becoming the new superpower at that point. And Chandler was still very looking things through a very British lens, you know, with his background. So I think he not only was cynical about what America had come, this almost wild west, what Los Angeles had come, Mm -hmm. this wild west, you know, that was founded on water and Hollywood, you know, and oil. And then it becomes like this burgeoning town because of Hollywood and and, and a powerful force at that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... A city that was easily controlled by Hollywood where the oil was connected and the police departments were connected and the judicial system was connected. Mm-hmm. And you had one guy, Marlowe, the knight, uh, who knew the system was rigged no matter what, but he still fought for the rights of the innocent. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, uh, mm-hmm. I also wonder, Josh, how much, of, um, how much of Chandler's experience at Dabney Oil was written into that thematic fabric, you know, of like 
corruption because he will have seen his share of it and was himself part of that corruption. And now that's not yeah. me saying that Dabney Oil was any more corrupt than these big conglomerates. I'm not trying to kind of cast dispersions that way. I'm just simply saying that, uh, you know, he will have, as a representative of of a booming industry, he'll have seen his share of, of um, hazardous people. Yeah. Thing about it too is that by the time like Hollywood was all was the main force in Los Angeles, you know, and that including the government and whatnot, the oil industry had all but dried up after Dabney Oil. Like it pretty much dried up completely. Yeah. I mean, the oil derricks are are were that point were drying up, you know. And the city was founded, as I said, on that Wild West aspect of like a feudal world of oil barons that controlled Texas, New Mexico, and lot and California, particularly Los mm-hmm. Angeles area. Even so Arizona. They made all, Arizona, like I mean, the families that founded mm-hmm. Los Angeles, they were from that background. They were the old yeah. families. They were they were oil families, right? So that deep sort of like feudalistic, uh, aristocratic uh, uh, foundations was always there, and there was mm-hmm. always people who had the money to do so to control the system. Yeah. And then you had everything else on top of that, that layers and layers of corruption, uh, everything going back and making sure that, you know, this person was protected, this person was protected. If you're a star, you're protected because you're part of a studio and the studio will cover it up or the police department will cover it up. Like right and wrong was an ideal, but it wasn't the goal. The goal was to process things as they possibly could in in the world that you live in. And that's what Marlowe did. And he tried to work and he was an outlier because his character worked around the system or navigated the system in a way where he could help his clients the best way possible uh, while, you know, brushing off against the criminal and the judicial element. The one part of the judicial element being the ones that are people who are just doing their jobs and want to go home and feed their kid, you know, feed their families. Yeah. And, you know, and, and they're, they had turned a blind eye to the corruption. But I mean, what can they do? And then there's people actually who are taking part in that corruption. So there's always those types of people that Marlowe was always set up against all the time. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of looping back to how Chandler viewed Los Angeles. Is that the answer to the question you were it looking is. for? Is I, that the, was I it think the way so, that, yeah. that you're seeing it? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. And I, I mean, we don't need to keep, to keep kind of prattling on with this, but I do think it's interesting conversation because like when he began writing for the pulps in the mid thirties, and then you think about the publication of the big sleep in 39 and then the 20, the 20 years between that and playback America had become, truly had become that world power. You know, you think about its role in World War II and its growth from that time onwards, and it really had changed such an extraordinary amount to become that Cold War power as well that um, was just burgeoning at at the start of the 40s. I mean, it's a remarkable story, and that's the backdrop of the America that he writes. And I think that... You get that America sweep too, eh? Mm -hmm. Like, if you think about it, like the big sleep, it begins like in the late 30s, in the 30s, 40s, where, you know, you had the local powers in control, but World War II was 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 about to happen, was about to occur. You know, we talk about, like, in Lady in the Lake, we have soldiers and whatnot Mm -hmm. uh, being mentioned. So World War II is going on during the main sweep of the novels. But then... uh, then we get to like the nineteen, the late, the mid fifties, you know, with the long goodbye and playback, and now we're seeing the world, you know, that you would see something like of in uh, in Mad Men, for example, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. high, you know, like the America, the new superpower, the rising, you know, uh, force of uh, capitalism running the world, and it's such, you know, this is when Detroit was like the Motor City before Detroit became what it is now. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it was, uh, it was, it was this, this, it was the baby boom. It was this huge uh, American dream was looked like it had the illusion of being fulfilled. Everyone was in suburbia. Mm-hmm. I love how like, you know, in the 
40s novels of, of uh, Philip Marlowe, the ones that were that were written and 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 and, uh, and uh, take place in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get that noir sort of aesthetic in Chandler's writing in terms of the environs and and the writing style. But another writing style, but in in the descriptions and uh, just the mise en scène, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. Mm-hmm. But then in the long goodbye, we're in suburbia now. We're in a whole different yeah, environment very outside true. of those as, that, that you think of the noir aesthetics or the detective fiction aesthetics, and we're in a whole different ball game. And I just like how you pointed out, you know, that's the whole sweep of America. Mm-hmm. And you can see that through the lens of these novels going through and how Chandler sees it himself as well. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. It is cool. So, yeah. I mean, if, if I asked you this question, and I appreciate it's, it's on the spot question, you might not be able to just give me a straight answer, but if you can, go for it. Um, yeah. Why, why, would, why would a reader in the 21st century want to pick up a Philip Marlowe novel? Outside can of being a fan of crime fiction. I mean, have we already answered that question? Probably through the characterization. I would say that you would have to be influenced by something that you liked. You know, you go read Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, or you go read, for example, uh, or you see Blade Runner, or you see a film like L.A. Confidential, or anything that, that was inspired by Chandler. Right. So you, basically, you find something that Chandler obviously influenced, mm-hmm. and then you go to look, go and say, okay. I like that. You know, yeah. I like that aesthetic. I like that. I like those themes. I want to explore more stories like that. Fair enough. And I so think it, that's it, how it you get be, led yeah, back to okay. Raymond Chandler. So an antecedent literary experience. not Exactly. Right. Okay. So you don't see Chandler or his Marlowe stories offering anything new. They are part of a time, part of an epoch, part of, yes. part of a period that, that a conventional reader would only appreciate in retrospect. Even though they could get stuff out of the characterization oh, and, and the thematics, yeah, okay, yes, it has to be a learning experience, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because okay. a lot of people who read mystery novels modern days, you know, they're reading James Patterson, yeah. they're reading Ian Rankin, mm-hmm. they're they're reading uh, even like for example uh, Julian Flynn, they're reading Gone Girl or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like they, they'll find their Chandler inspiration somewhere, and that will eventually lead them to the source, I guess sure. you could say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, um, I, I think that, you know, the, the one overarching gift that these novels would offer a reader is the character of Marlowe himself, the frustrations you see him struggle with, the, sw- the small, quiet victories that he has. And also, I think the very human moments that you watch him revel in. And uh, it's not, it's, it, or squirm in, you know? Um, squirm in, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the, the backdrop, the set decoration is different, but you're still seeing a human fighting against odds, right? I mean, culturally, yes. we've got a lot of change. It's interesting. And, and I feel as though the character of Chandler is one that is well-written and complex enough to last, even if the conditions of his America or the conventions of his genre would always lock him in place. Absolutely. All right. So why, why don't we then, Josh, uh, having spoke a little bit about this and maybe a little bit too much about this, why don't we go on and, uh, and have a bit of fun? Uh, we've, we've got our category rankings now that we, uh, we want to share with the listeners. So this is us talking through our pipes. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that um, Lighten the Pipes is all about generating an index of scoring for our reviews, which is only part of the discussion, of course, of our texts. But we build it around the acronym PIPES, where we look at the principal characters of each story, the investigations, the perpetrators, the environs, 
and the supporting or secondary characters. And we give that a mark out of five, which gives us our index for our ranking. And that then will inform our final ranking when we go to do a series or a single review. In this case, what we've done, because it's kind of our series finale or our season finale, if you prefer, on Chandler, is we have gone through each of those features and we've selected five. So five for each category. And uh, let's start with principle, Josh. Are you ready to go? Okay. So these, yeah. th these are the top five stories where we feel Marlowe is at his best. Why don't we just go with our number fives? I'll, I'll go with my number five first. I think that he's a little bit darker and grittier here in this story and in, I guess, in his worldview at this point in his sweep. But I really like the way that Marlo looks out for Mavis, uh, or Layla, if you want, in The Little Sister. And uh, even though it wasn't one of my favorite books, I think that he was really good in this story, and I enjoyed reading and following him. So my number five is The Little Sister. Yeah, that was my number five as well. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, I agree with you on on the Mavis thing, that he was trying to look out for her, you know, and despite her her not... And I think just in looking out for everybody in this story, or trying to anyway, mm -hmm. and yeah. and being and being helpless to deal with like the insanity that's going around him, whether it's in Hollywood or whether it's ice pick murders or that's right. uh, yeah. Mavis's situation, uh, and the you know the big femme fatale web he gets caught up in it at the end and mm -hmm. walks away from, like definitely showing his cynicism, his 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 apathy, but also like inner despair. Uh, I think grim is a good word to describe uh, his yeah. countenance in this story. Uh, yeah, The Little Sisters are my number five. Cool. Well, my number four, Josh, I went with The Big Sleep. I, I mean, I understand that that's where Marlowe's blueprint is established. And we've got that great Hawksian dialogue. Um, oh, by the way, speaking of Hawks, I watched His Girl Friday <laughs> the other Ooh, day. Great movie. Oh, dude. It is really good. I mean, Cary Grant, I mean, I'm just struck by their fashion, first of all, because that double-breasted yes. suit he wears with the pleated fronts, the thing is like a tent, right? Compared to what, it is. Compared to what people wear today, but he looks so smart. And, oh, she, yeah, it's, it's just R such Rosalind Russell? Great. She's great, yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry, I'm getting off track, but uh, good movie, good movie. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's I just, an essential, uh, what's it called? Screwball comedy, I guess you could say. Yeah, it is, it yeah. is. But I felt that uh, in The Big Sleep, his characterization was, was good. Uh, I, I don't think it's the best we've seen, though. So I, I went for number four because it was fun. Proto Marlowe. It it's like Proto Marlowe. Proto Marlowe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Proto Marlowe, yeah. <laughs> He's Stepping still in his primordial ooze. <laughs> yeah, he's still in his primordial ooze, so to speak. <laughs> so what did you go for for your number four? Uh, I went for Lady in the Lake. Oh, uh, cool. Okay. I, I think the other three that follow this towards the, you know, in the last three uh, items that I chose for this category. Lady in the Lake I choose because I just loved him as an investigator in this particular story. I loved how he puts puts things together and he comes off as a very competent detective operator in this story, despite, you know, when he gets blackjacked every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> Right, good choice. Um, my number three for principal, I think Marlowe is really good in Farewell, My Lovely. In this story, we see him as resourceful, you know, he's, he's taking leaps. He's kind of acting on faith and his toughness, and he's very reactionary, and he's very kind of quick-witted. I think Farewell, My Lovely is, uh, is a great Marlowe story. Yeah, quick-witted and uh, sympathetic, like, mm -hmm, empathetic mm -hmm. for sure, like, particularly towards, you know, that poor old lady 
well, the drunken old lady anyway. Yeah. But, uh, and also too, just like, I just like, you know, his compassion for Moose Malloy and his mm. sadness for that character. Like it came off very strong in a detective novel, which yeah. I think uh, propels him over the big sleep, in my opinion, as a character. Like I think Farewell, My Lovely was the first cementing of Marlowe's, like it was basically the fine tuning of Marlowe's character was mm-hmm. in Farewell, My Lovely. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and by that point, uh, Chandler, you know, had a character fully molded and ready to go when it, when he needed him from that point onward. Yeah, he knew what he was doing and how he was going to put him and how he was going to react. Because you do need a couple of stories, don't you, to know who your character is as you've created them. You, you want to test him out and see how he or she's going to behave. Um, what was your number three, pal? My number three uh, was Farewell, My Lovely. Okay, nice. Well, my number... For those exact reasons I mentioned. <laughs> my number two, in this story, I think Marlowe is so fun i love the way that much like in the little sister he he looks out for a character in a really compassionate way you can see that moral compass on Mm -hmm. display but he brings down the matriarch uh murdoch and i love him in the high window i just think he's really really good there yeah not a great investigation but Mm -hmm. uh one of my favorite Marlowe arcs for sure and is in that book I just loved him looking out for Merle and bringing her back home, you know. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, and, back the, to Kansas. And, <laughs> yeah, and taking and taking, you know, and being up front with Murdoch and taking her down, you know, mm-hmm. despite you know any like he didn't care that she was a woman, you, you know, like or or mm-hmm. you know he didn't care about about her background, like and beside her husband being a piece of garbage as well. Yeah. She also was a piece of garbage in her own way. Yeah. So. Yeah. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the High Window is my second favorite, like Philip Marlowe story. Oh, nice one. Uh, Me too. Yeah, number one is going to be interesting. Uh-oh. You want to say it at the exact same time? <laughs> I think we've probably both got the long goodbye there. Do we? Oh, I put. I did pay- payback. <laughs> oh, play- oh, wait, playback, yeah. I didn't even. I didn't even, even get the name right. So that's how much yeah. I don't care about playback. No, I put the long <laughs> goodbye. Yeah, me too. Me too. Marlowe is. Uh, he's, he's shown here in complete. I think complexity. He's fragile. He's trusting. He's vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Very moralistic. He's he's really emotionally dynamic, and you know what I mean in yeah, a way. Raw. Yeah, really raw. I liked him. Yeah. Really, really fun. Well, that's our principle. That's our first uh, letter taken care of. Let's move on to I investigations. These being the top five narratives. Now, this is this is kind of a category that we always talked, and at the early point of our show, we kind of disagreed with a bit because. The investigation doesn't just mean the plot or kind of like the events of the story. This is also the point where Josh and I give marks for kind of the writing style and the structure and sort of the the um, the craft of writing as well. That that fits in here to the investigations. So, uh, with with that caveat aside, what's your number five? My number five is the high window. Okay. Wow. Cool. Well, not the high window was yeah. my number four. So I think we're pretty okay. close. We're pretty close there. Um, why did you put it there in number five? I was de- debating the high window or the little sister. I did like the Hollywood aspect and the writing in uh, in the little sister, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I found that it was also a little bit soapboxy of, of Chandler as well at the same time. Yeah, and yeah. Well, I just find the high window in terms of writing style. Like, I, what I like about it, it's an unconventional detective story because the investigation is kind of, uh, in terms of the writing, this story is solved without Marlowe's intervention. I guess you could say mm-hmm. he's just sort of like a reactionary figure in the in, as the story goes along, right? Yeah. So yeah. 
I, I just really liked how he was just in the middle of everything, but he could easily put things apart and and uh, pick things apart, sorry, and then and analyze and then react correctly to all that was going on around him. Mm-hmm. That still made him look competent. It still made him look an efficient investigator throughout. And I love the characterizations of Murdoch. It was a great choice of, of doing a femme fatale that had a more believable background, I guess you mm-hmm. could say. Uh and then you also ha- and the idea of you know old of new money also being as bad as old money is what yeah, I, I like how Chandler was d- was democratic in that sense mm-hmm. uh, going both ways. Yeah, the subtext uh, the subtext of the nouveau riche is really interesting in that story. Yeah, and I, I could tell Chandler had fun writing about a heist about the doubloons and all that. Like I think he really enjoyed putting that part in the story and making it have a little bit of a twist than the others. Like I like mm-hmm. that part of the story where it was almost like a. A Maltese Falcon kind of MacGuffin they lure you with with the yeah. with the with the doubloon, but then all of a sudden you know like it's not really the story. It's just, that's just one part of the story, mm-hmm. and then how it all connected. Like I thought they, I, th- I thought it did a good job. A good job. I think the high window is going to be one that I, I, that more and more now that I think about it, mm-hmm. I, I really really enjoyed. Mm. Well, I put the high window number four as I said. You had it number five. Little the little sister was my number five. So we just kind of switched four and five there, I guess. Um, I, I, I like I like the idea though of siblings teaming up to to kind of frame or milk their step sibling, you know, that who's a star. Mm-hmm. I can see it as a very conceivable and a very kind of long lasting crime. You know, I mean, for as long as yeah. people are celebrities and making more money, and that inequality exists, I can see people in families being snakes. Like, I mean, every family has a snake in the grass, you know, or two or three. And this is a story, really, that could have just been called that, the snake in the grass. Yes, you know, hundred percent. Yeah. So that's my number. That was my number five, and the high window was my number four. Yeah. I mean, I just love that evil black widow kind of matriarch spinning a web, you know, and Marlo kind of cutting away its fibers. I think that's really, really good story. Uh, what What'd you go for then for number four? If it's not the little sister, I went for the big sleep. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. That was my honorable like, mention. You know, yeah. That was your, I was your mention. Yeah, it didn't I think it. like the the Chandler formula is is uh, presented here in a uh, a way that's you know easily digestible. Um, I kind of like just the raw kind of feeling of the Big Sleep. Like Chandler is trying to write a novel for the genre, mm-hmm. so you could pick up the Big Sleep and enjoy it just on its own without having to kind of delve further into Raymond Chandler. Yeah, uh, you just enjoy it as just a good mystery story or a good you know detective yarn on its own. Right, it has that pulpy feel to it. That's kind of like half guilty pleasure. But also half like, oh, there's something much more to this too. At the same time, like there's there's layers underneath here that mm-hmm. Chandler is just beginning to to you know sift up, I guess you could say. Yeah. So I, I like I like the big sleep, uh, despite you know how it has like a second, uh, it becomes a second story halfway That's right. through. Yeah. And that was why I, I left it feel- off my list. It's a bit too chop and change for me. I, yeah, I can see that yeah, it has that Frankenstein, you know, quality to it for sure. But he still manages to tie it up. And I, I also like a lot of the characters in The Big Sleep, you know, mm-hmm. like Eddie Mars was a conventional, like, uh, he- uh, heavy, but at the same time, uh, he had that Chandler twist to him that made him a bit more interesting, a bit more charming and, and, uh, and, and charismatic, mm-hmm. you know, and. Uh, it has some great henchmen as well. Some really good side characters like Agnes, for example. Uh, and uh, and the Sternward sisters were interesting for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly Vivian. And, and General Sternwood was also a really interesting character. You could tell Marlowe respected the, the character that he was writing about in his own way. And someone who saw the sins of his past, you know, catching up with them. So I definitely feel that uh, The Big Sleep is one of my favorite stories. Good, fair enough. My number three 
I went for Farewell, My Lovely. Uh, to me, this is just Marlowe as Indiana Jones. Like, in all of the stories he's in, you know, he's more beaten up and sort of resourceful and from A to B to C in this one, I think, than the other ones where he has time and space to be a bit more calculating. Um, yeah. But in Farewell, My Lovely, just, he, he, it's, yeah, I just find the energy of the story it, it, as he's thrown from event to event. I just really yes. liked following him in that sort of what have I got myself into way, you know? Yeah, the pieces, like, he was thrown from event to event to event. And like in the high window, he's reacting to things, but he's much more resourceful from as the punches roll. Like, by the end of the high window, he's figured everything out, and he's able to bring down uh, Murdoch. But during Farewell, My Lovely, he, he you know, he, he takes that fateful trip with Moose Malloy into the bar. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, like, he's just bouncing and bouncing and bouncing, but reacting to it in a competent way. He gets knocked down and beat up. But like Indiana Jones, you know, he puts his fedora on and keeps <laughs> going, right? Yeah. So... And and there's also a lot of depth too, and you really it really it really to me as a, in the writing style, this was when Chandler was taking the the talent that he was hinting at in the Big Sleep and bringing mm-hmm. it to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 yeah, Farewell My Lovely is when I, when even you said, okay, I, I like I'm into Raymond Chandler now. I'm plugged in. At, you know what yeah, I mean? I'm plugged in. Yeah, absolutely. So what was yeah. your number three investigation? My number three was Farewell My Lovely. Oh, cool. All right. Well, number two. Now, this this was a bit of a surprise for me. I, I really did like this story as it was laid out on the page. I thought all the setup was there, all the qualities for an excellent thriller were there. But as we'll see when I come to my final novel rankings, not to show my hand too quickly, this wasn't one of my favorites overall. But mm-hmm. um, The Lady in the Lake was... I, I said this on the episode that I loved the first part so much. And then first half, the first half. Yeah. But then things started to disappear a bit for me. But I thought that, you know, as an investigation goes, investigating this disappearing woman and, you know, this kind of the different characters that come in and out of that investigation, really, really neat stuff going on there. And it, it, it is unconventional, not that you would investigate a missing person, but kind of where the investigation takes him is rather unconventional. Yes. And I really like yeah. this one for that. I thought there, I think there's a lot to offer um, from an investigation point of view. Plus the, the, the environmental features that, that Chandler creates through his writing style, I think are really deliberate and exacting in the first half. And it makes it really evocative, really evocative story. Yeah, I agree. Like the writing in particular in The Lady in the Lake is fantastic. The right, like the writing style, how he describes Puma Point, you know, Little Fawn Lake, how he describes... Uh, all other environs in the story, mm-hmm. like, you know, the beach house that Lavery lives in, 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 in um, Bay City, uh, just how he describes, you know, finding the body, uh, Lavery's body in the shower, uh, just how he describes, yeah. uh, you, know, you know, the, like, the Elmore residence across the street and mm-hmm. all the, and all the backstory and all the details, all the characters that flit in and out, you know, like Miss yeah. Fromset, uh, Kingsley. Uh, and, and and to me, this to me is like his essential whodunit story. Uh, it goes up there with the great whodunits, in my opinion, with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Conan Doyle and Christie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one of my favorite mystery stories. And cool. of all the Marlowe novels, it is the only whodunit, if you think about it. It is. It is the only linear whodunit. Yes, you're absolutely right. A- exactly. And mm-hmm. it t- yeah, it is a great example of formula. Uh, formula being made excellent, which can be debated, of course, obviously. I mean, particularly the second half, you feel that it kind of fails on that, but... Mm-hmm. I guess you, you get what you want from this story, like, like, like anyone, but I think overall, I think it's well put together. And, uh, it, I, you know, I think it's one of the stories with the rereading, too, that, that was just make more and more, more Yeah, I think sense, you're right. You know? 
I think I will do a reread of this sometime in the near future because I agree with what you're saying. It is it is his only who done it in a sense, and I think that shows Chandler as a really versatile writer. He's not trapped within the genre, but instead, what he's doing is he's kind of evolving the genre a little bit with this story because he's putting a who done it within this world of sort of twisted, corrupted noir, you know, feature. And, and I, I think you're right. You're onto something there. To me, if I were to recommend like a Raymond Chandler novel for people to read, you know, like or a good detective yarn mm-hmm. from that time period, I would 100% recommend Lady in the Lake. Nice. Because it does stand alone, I think, from the other stories as well. So It does. It feels different, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like a murder of the week kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. like you turn on, uh, I don't know, like Castle or something, and, and this is this week's case, you know what I mean? Or the Murdoch murders. <laughs> or the Murdoch, Murdoch Mysteries, you mean? Murdoch Mysteries, yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's a Canadian reference, folks. Yeah, anyway, moving on. Uh, my number one investigation is no surprise. It's The Long Goodbye. I think this offers the best of what Chandler had created with um, with with the character. Is that yours as well? No, man, playback. <laughs> playback, just, sorry, yeah. No, You've used sorry. that joke once. I, I did, yeah. That, it's... It, there's no three strikes, only two strikes with that joke. So it's right. um, no, the long goodbye in terms of story, uh, story slash narrative, in terms mm-hmm. of writing style, in terms of character, in terms of themes, in terms of overall emotional power, evocation that I felt reading the story. Uh, yeah, it is Chandler's masterpiece. And it's probably one of the great pieces of American literature as well. Yeah, undervalued, um, perhaps, but who are we to say that? You know, just lowly mm-hmm. podcasters. Right, moving on. We all have our own canons. We do. Um, And let's shoot ours forward into the perpetrators category, where we'll talk Mm -hmm. about our top five here. Uh, I'll start again with my fifth, starting from the the backup. Uh, I'm going Orpha May and Orin Quest. Now, I put them together because their plans to frame and blackmail Lila, I think, are are, you know, very joined. Right. I mean, they saw eye to eye. They they preconceived this. And yeah, they're just kind of rotten folk, aren't they? They're just rotten. They really are. And there's a disappointment. There's a disappointment that Marlo kind of ushers. I feel at the end of the story when he's talking to her in the office, and he realizes that they're just they're just shit siblings. Like they're just terrible. Yeah, they're terrible people. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Think about her going back to her dentist office, secretarial position, and stuff like that, and yeah. uh, going through her daily motions. You know, it's 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 the it's the banality of evil. Yeah. Yeah. What's well, your number five? My number five is Carmen Sternwood. Mm, I thought about Carmen. Yeah, okay, we'll see. She shows up, yeah. Why Carmen, that, number five? That cr- that crazy nymphomaniac. Like, <laughs> I didn't know whether to sympathize with her or whether, you know, to uh, to, to, to outright hate her. Like, mm-hmm. I found her a very c- conflicting character, but I think what Chandler wrote, when he, Chandler wrote her character, she comes off being real, in my opinion. Like, I can see someone like that existing and being in her position and whatnot, you think of people like, I'm not trying to say people like Paris Hilton or the Kardashians, you know, are are like this, right? But I mean, who knows? Maybe they are. Yeah. But uh, like, we don't know what dark secrets, you know, some of these powerful people have and, 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 their fa- and what they cover up for their daughters and their, you know, and, and their sons and whatnot, you know, in these circumstances. But to me, I just found her a, a realistic character, someone in that society, even, even in that time period, who would exist. And uh, someone that like, you know, is a temptress, but... Uh, also is someone also very innocent at the same time and not really knowing what they're doing. So again, I found her enigmatic and I wasn't sure whether or not what she was, but 
I believed her on the page, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, Well, my number four is Eileen Wade from The Long Goodbye. Now, I put her down to number four um, because she's, I don't think, as kind of striking as some of these other perpetrators, but she's very complex. She's got a complex history, and I I mean, her motivations in some respects are justified, but murder's never justified. You know what I mean? No. Like, it's it's a really, it's a tricky one to follow her because you do sympathize with her in a way I think that's a little less gray with than it is with Carmen Sternwood. But uh, yeah, she she was number four for me. Definitely interesting and uh, kind of sympathetic as well. Well, my number four is, is the Chandler equivalent of Ursula the Sea Witch, and that is 100% <laughs> Miss Murdoch. Uh, yeah, yeah. She was a piece of work, as you said, not like a femme fatale. She was a black widow, man. Mm-hmm. Like, totally. She, like big big bulging black widow, you know, in, 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 in her web and everyone gathering around her and protecting, you know, her fortune and, and her son and doing everything she can to do so while terrorizing everyone else. Poor Merle. Yep. Uh, poor, poor Marlo Merle, even yep. having, Marlo. but Marlo was able to one to, you know, cut through her web and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, you know, using the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 using that like magic sword to do so, you know, cause he is a knight after all. <laughs> Sorry. I just made a really random Lord of the Rings reference, but because uh, I'm thinking of like Frodo being chased by the big spider in in, in the cave and stuff. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like Miss Murdoch was a, was a great antagonist and an, an original one compared to what we saw before. Yeah. So I I, I was mm-hmm. I was very open minded to her when she was presented in the High Window. And man, the High Window is getting some good love in this episode. It is. It really is. Yeah. Well, my number my number three is Mildred Haviland, uh, or Muriel Chess, if you prefer, from The Lady in the Lake, mm. you know. And she's probably even a bigger perpetrator than a number three, but she's violent and dangerous. Like, you just think, even even in her role as, you know, the nurse with the dope doctor, you know, like yeah. Dr. Almore, she's a really dangerous creature, and she knows how to use oh, the yeah. weapons that are around her. And, yeah, I mean, she was really compelling to read about. So psychopathic like she yeah, could you yeah. know or sociopathic at least mm-hmm. i mean just how she was able to convince marlo she was somebody else and marlo believed her yeah like someone who's well known for imitating people and wearing a person suit you know mm-hmm. in, in that sense right mm-hmm. uh yeah she was a piece of work as well and that scene um, that scene where she that that where she uh, where marlo confronted her in the hotel room that scene was actually frightening from a suspenseful point of view like i i thought that marlo really could have died there you know yeah, a hundred percent. That was pretty scary. I, I definitely agree. Like he could have lost that one, and mm-hmm. uh, he almost did, right? But he almost did, yeah. My number three, actually, I was thinking about uh, Muriel Chess, uh, Mister Haviland, mm-hmm. but I went with Helen Grail for my number three. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was the original. I, I, she was like one of. I think after Carmen Sternwood, she was like the first real like femme fatale figure mm-hmm. in in Chandler's novels mm-hmm. because I found with Carmen Sternwood, you know, like she was a bit of a, of a nymphette and a bit of a fool in her own way. And she was always sure, yeah. high and drugged all the time. Helen Grail just seems like a, like, uh, just seems like a, like a very, uh, what's the word? Sociopathic, but also like cruel. Mm-hmm. And just like how, how she took out Moose Malloy at the end was just so cruel and, and terrible after all the stuff that he did to get to her, you know, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't really his fault and she had no appreciation for it whatsoever. Like, and I, I kind of liked the, the, that she was almost like an animal trapped in a corner and, but she, she didn't, she, but she, she never took, you know, um, she never took contrition for what she did. She just like, 
fought to the very end to be who she wanted to be. And that kind of made her a strong character, albeit a villainous character. So, because I, I did like how she went down. I thought that was really interesting, how she kind of like, in a blaze of glory, basically, right? Yeah. Like suicide yeah. by cop, right? Yeah. Um. So, I, I did like, I found her, yeah, she was the original Marlo Femme Fatale to me. And uh, uh, she's, so she stands out. An improvement on her was uh, Muriel Chess, but Grail was the first one that really chilled me to the bone. And and, that's the, and when she kills Moose Malloy, man, that was just, oh, man, like, I hated her. Like, there was just no remorse from her whatsoever. No sympathy, absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Well, she, yeah. was, she was my number two. So I put her just above you on, on that list for exactly the same reason. So I, I don't need to say anything more about Helen Grail or Velma, if you think mm-hmm. of her as Velma Valento. Um, right. What about your number, number two? Your number two. My number two, I think, is the most uh, smooth, efficient, uh, and cold-blooded hitman in the entire series, and that's Canino, mm-hmm. uh, Eddie Mars's uh, right-hand man. Nice. Uh, he was just a menacing figure all the way through that whole sequence when they're talking in the garage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm also thinking of the film too, and the you film are. did that sequence really well it did. too. It did. But the, but yeah. on the page, it was great as well too, uh-huh. right? Like, yeah. yeah Canino is one of the great Marlowe like uh, henchmen for sure, uh, for sure, and uh, he definitely stands out as the template for others to come. But I don't think anyone surpassed him for me, in my opinion. Okay, right, right. Well, that yeah. I mean, that's good. I I don't have him on my list, but I, I certainly can't uh, argue with what you're saying here. My number one, Josh, is Murdoch. I felt that she was mm. the most interesting and kind of destructive perpetrator. Obviously, she doesn't. Well, apart from her husband, you know, if you want to read read into that picture of her pushing him out the high window, I mean, it depends on how you see it. But I, she didn't take lives, but she destroys lives quietly through that sort of familial manipulation, the control, the theft, yes. the the sort of bluff that she plays with everyone and still manages to communicate herself as a victim in the first part of the story, which I think is is so very textured to her criminality. She's, you know? she's definitely a Karen, isn't she? Oh, she is. Yeah. So she was my favorite perpetrator um, as that, that I don't, I don't know why, but she just stands out, you know, I mean, okay. and like you said, she's the, she's the Ursula sea witch to this series. She really is. So she's, yeah, she's the one that stands out the most to me where, because I find her maybe, maybe the most cartoonish and evil if i can use that silly word you know i mean i find her that she stands out that way and, and maybe that's a reason to not have her as number one you know because she is so kind of a boss level enemy but mm. at the same time she she's so believable you know as a matriarch who's manipulated everyone in her life i, I can believe that and you know, Klein to control what bit of finance she can wrap her fingers around. You know, I, I like, I like that gravity to her. You know, like you could be living next to a Murdoch and not know it. You know, and exactly. and I think that you know you don't have to be sporting guns and uh, spats and wearing nice sharkskin suits and driving Buick Roadmasters to be a bad guy. You can just be a granny sitting underneath a blanket drinking port and. You'd never, you'd never be suspected. So I think that 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 makes that makes her quite interesting. That's my number one. How about you? My number one was uh, our favorite uh, lovesick corrupt cop, El Degarmo. Oh, <laughs> your favorite villain. Nice one. 
Yeah. 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 I think he was my, I think he was my number one. He was very well, it was well written. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was very well built up psychologically as a villain. Yeah. Uh, Definitely someone of physical force that Marlowe had to deal with. Very menacing and threatening. Oh yeah. But also kind of like unpredictable as well. Like you weren't quite sure if he was just a corrupt man who was lovesick, but had a heart of gold deep down, but you weren't quite sure until the very end. You know what I mean? That's right. And, uh, and Chandler plays that with you because he has so many red herrings going on. But yeah, El DeGarmo, to mm-hmm. me, of all the books, he sticks out as the most uh, developed uh, antagonist, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, you said it about the high window, but the Lady in the Lake's getting a little bit of love this episode as well. Can I ask you, buddy, just before we move off this category, and I'm aware that we're spending a bit of time on this, but I think this is an important question. Because um, I'm looking at my list and I realize that all the characters I've selected are female. And I mean, I know that's part of the genre with the femme fatale and whatnot, but... Do you think we could spend just a moment on this genre or perhaps the time or maybe even Chandler's representation of women as perpetrators? Like, is this is this male fear? Is it is it Chandlerian complex? Um, this resistance to women, is it a resistance to women's rights, liberation movements? Like, how can we now is it the Madonna it? Horror dichotomy? Yeah, or? exactly. Like, how can we yeah. as, as modern readers, as men, really conceptualize these female figures in context of, of Chandler personally, artistically, or more broadly, maybe even the world socially? Now, I know that's a loaded a loaded question, but I think that we should spend just a moment on this idea of females as perpetrators within the genre or within the Chandler stories, given that your biography... even in stories influenced by Chandler. Yeah, I mean, yeah. even today, you know, the powerful female villain is still something that's still used. The spider woman, the uh, powerful political figure woman... Uh, the Machiavellian female character, the uh, femme fatale, as we said, uh, they're still prevalent to this day in, in film, TV, novels, everything. I, I mentioned Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl. There's a perfect mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? You have like Robin Wright on uh, The House of Cards, for example. Uh, probably even more villainous than Kevin Spacey's character, surprisingly enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you have Cersei Lannister as well, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean... There's just so many different uh, influences of that type of trope that still exists to this day. It, it is popular. I think it's somewhat of an internalized misogyny on the part of the writers at the time or even up until this day that still exists in society. But then again, I mean, men can be good. Uh, women can be good. Yeah, And of men course. can be bad and yeah. women can be bad. I mean, what's the what, what's wrong with doing that, right? Like, unless people believe you have some agenda. That's right. And, yeah. you know, it's well, all, all yeah. fair in love and writing. You know what I mean? You can yeah. do what you want with your characters. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. I think you're right. I mean, all is fair in love and writing. But do stories like this, do series like this, do they reinforce the tropes to a point where it normalizes the patriarchy even more? I mean, is there a, a socializing thing? threat to this as a genre the hard-boiled detective i mean well i, I think what you think at the time that this was being written mm-hmm. on top of that chandler's own you know view of the world i think he was very much into that madonna whore dichotomy yeah because chandler was this errant knight or he believed himself to be who would save the damsel in distress and she was pure and good and stuff and and sexuality while it was necessary and you know it was part of love and and whatnot it was still sort of something that was even today, that's still repressed in American society in sure, yeah. particular. And I think, you know, I think this is, again, it's fear of the unknown. It's fear of, of something, of a counterculture that threatened, you know, the foundational basis of what America was. And and uh, noir really, and 
the films that were made in this period that were noir and and the books that were written in this period, I think they really answered that, the mm-hmm. outliers of society, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what that's why the genre was so popular. I mean, in the 1930s, when Warner Brothers started making its gangster films, those were meant as social justice films to show the gangster rise to a certain height mm-hmm. and fall. Mm-hmm. You know, you got like Scarface and anything with, you know, anything with James Cagney in it, or, mm-hmm. for example, always showing, you know, like, the downfall of the gangster, right? And how he would be punished by society for his crimes by the end of the movie. But then eventually we get this shift where the main character, the gangster main character becomes the detective character who is basically the one figure who has a, who has a moral compass uh, that he best uses in a gradually corrupt uh, society. It's not the, it's not the criminals that are bad. It's the actual. It's the government that mm-hmm. yeah. harbors them, that mm-hmm. protects them, that allows them to do what they want because the people who run society use them for their own benefit, right? So they're molded that way. Mm-hmm. So more and more and more, you get away from these the, the morality, and Noir really introduces that. Mm-hmm. But I think what so in a way, the writings of Chandler when he talks about uh, when he portrays women the way that he does, I think he is pointing as as, as you said to that fear deep down mm-hmm. of where is this going to lead to? Where is women's sexuality going to lead to? Where are homosexuals who don't have iron in their bones at all, according mm-hmm. to Raymond Chandler? Mm-hmm. You know, where, where is this deviancy going to lead to? It's going to be the breakdown of society, and it shows that fear within. Marlowe has doubts about it, but at the same time, I think he would prefer purity more so than anything. So Chandler, so Chandler is also very old-fashioned in this way, too. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think some of the ideas that he puts forward are going to be welcomed in today's society. No, I agree. And, I mean, we yeah. had talked about this when we did playback we about, did. you know, yep. you know how those scenes look to us differently, you know, mm-hmm. just how we look to see how James Bond, Sean Connery, played by James Bond, acts compared to, you know, how Daniel Craig's Bond is portrayed, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in today's uh, films. So, you know, it, it's... it's uh, I think it goes back to the time period that they were written. Yeah, and I think it is a loaded question. I'm well aware of that. But I I do just feel that because it is a trope of the genre, probably if we were to investigate the genre longer, um, as we we hope to do in the near future, we can integrate and incorporate some some other perspectives, some female or some LGBT perspectives into into what we're doing. Because conceptualizing Mm. these female roles is, is a challenge. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that keeps the hard-boiled detective genre very locked in history. Um, because as you said, the quote-unquote deviancy, the, the deviance of some of these behaviors, like characters like uh, like we saw in Playback, you know, Vermilier, who takes sex as she wants it, um, would yeah. probably have gone against the grain and would still uh, would have made readers a little uncomfortable or uncertain, and maybe Marlowe was himself. And then, of course, you got to think that Marlowe's also dealing with his own mother issues, as everyone seems to be, you know, when they go to put mm-hmm. pen to paper. So Chandler's own mother issues as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, it, it's a big question, and I just wanted to pose that at, at the end of this all, you know, I would like to maybe do a bit more work in that area and incorporate some LGBT and feminist uh, perspective in it. Yeah. It would be interesting yeah. to look at, you know, like uh, the portrayal of homosexuality in Raymond Chandler's novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you go back to Geiger, you know, um, there's an honorable mention for a perpetrator is Geiger. For yeah. Sure. That guy totally. was also a mm-hmm. quote unquote piece of work as he, well. He was, yes. And, and very typical of the kind of villainous people you find nowadays as well. Yeah. 
Well, I think, Josh, the next couple of categories we'll, able, we'll be able to move quickly through. These are the environment and the supporting uh, character uh, categories. Now, because we've spoken about the books, we probably don't need, and we're not going to quote from any of these sections. If you're interested in why we like these areas or characters, you can go back to the stories and, uh, or sorry, you can go back to our episodes and listen if you'd like. But uh, yeah, in terms of the settings or the environs, we have separated into macro and micro. Macro being like the, you know, the big settings, the towns, cities, whatever. And the, the smaller ones being more kind of memorable interior spaces or buildings or rooms or stuff like that. Mm. Just things that kind of popped for us. And if I can start, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just give you all of my, my big settings and I won't say much about them. And then I'll give you uh, a chance to say yours. So... My number five for environs, uh, macro, Esmeralda in playback, how it's described for us. I, I really like the difference that it strikes, the contrast it establishes. Playback from. gets its first mention in our <laughs> yeah, uh, episode. Little, it does, yeah. Well, besides being a bad joke anyway. Yes, it gets, uh, our, it gets a first favorable review. How's that? I thought Esmeralda was really good. Uh, my number four, the gambling boats and Bay City generally in Farewell, My Lovely. Really memorable, big picture scenes for me there. Uh, number three, um, Palermo's apartment complex and Bunker Hill, more generally, in the high window. It was, mm, it was rendered yes. really, really nice by Marlowe. One of my favorite visuals, yes. Um, my number two, buddy, uh, the hot, sticky, dangerous suburbs of L.A. in Farewell, My Lovely. I just love the way that Los Angeles comes off the page there in all of its mm-hmm. gore and all of its glory. Uh, and number one surprised me that it was my favorite but i liked the first half so much puma point and little fawn lake mm-hmm. in lady in the lake man i just really feel like marlo transports you to this place you know in, in yeah yeah totally. and I, I also love the contrast in those animal names you know i mean if you think about it you've got the puma with the, the very you know the very sleek silent hunter and then you've got fawn the innocence and you think about what happened to yeah. this place you know you think about the idea of being preyed on and and the innocence i think it's really clever so why don't, why don't you give me my, your five? Uh, number five was Bunker Hill, the apartment complex in the high nice. window. Yep, cool. Uh, it was internal, but we also saw the outside of it. Yep. Uh, I love the Sternwood residence and the big sleep. Nice one, yeah. Uh, it was very beautiful, Very established yeah. in setting yep. uh, and also brought layers to the characters that live there. Like it felt like it was a real place and yep. right off the page, it, it worked so well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, number three was I love the outskirts of Bay City in uh, mm-hmm. Lady in the Lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, shack where like the private detective's wife was was living in, mm-hmm. and just the just like the whole like it was on the outskirts of the city, you know, with like all the the junkyard fields and stuff yeah. like that, and then and this and the night and how it was dusk and the cop cars show up and start tailing Marlowe, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that was just really great uh, imagery. I found I really like that part. Nice. Um, the danger was felt there too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, number two is Hollywood in Little Sister. Great. Mm. Even though, as I mentioned, that's that's Chandler soapboxing a little bit. Mm-hmm. I still love the portrayal of okay, Hollywood good. coming from a yeah. point of view. Yeah. The uh, Hollywood as a whole was just done very well. Uh, and my number one, because to me, this if this is even though it's a it's a Raymond Chandler, it's a Philip Marlowe story. It's a it's still a detective story, and it's just like to me, it's like Holmes and Watson getting on a train, going up, going up, mm-hmm. you know, going up, going to Essex or going to Kent or mm-hmm. wherever they're going and doing a case right on the site. And that's Puma Point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that to me is a, a, a perfect mystery location for like a whodunit story, in my mm-hmm. opinion. It is. It's, and it, and, really uh, is. And it gets Marlowe out of his element and it's some kind of a different, uh, compared to what he's already been in. Yeah. So I also enjoyed that too. Cool. 
That's that's a good one. Well, we see eye to eye on it. Um, and I don't really know if this is a macro setting, but I, I give an honorable mention to Veringer's Ranch or Hospice in The Long Goodbye, because I kind of like the way that place is set up there, you know, in the valley where you've got Earl kind of guarding the space outside. And, uh, you know, this is where um, Roger Wade goes to get to get, uh, you know, clean, so to speak. Uh, I got a couple of other ones here too, buddy, in the micro category, uh, just little spaces mm-hmm, and places. Um, I, this is where I had Sternwood's greenhouse uh, because I think that that mm-hmm, atmosphere of uncomfortable heat, stickiness with the plants and the vines growing around this old man who, who's kind of, he's kind of like a failed Murdoch in his own way, you know, like he's got his own web, but it's it's kind of strangling him. It's it's asphyxiating him, whereas she's very much in control of her web. And I think the environments are very, uh, very interesting that both of these he's older more characters honorable. sit in. He's more honorable than her. Yeah. That's the thing is he's yeah. not, he doesn't play the game that she does. That's mm-hmm. the difference. Uh, or f- he's too tired or to do or sick to do so. Number four for me, here's another playback. It's the glass room. I mentioned it on our last episode. I really like this restaurant. I did like the glass room. Uh, Number three, Roger and Eileen Wade's home in The Long Goodbye. I really like the spaces uh, around that place. Uh, Yes. In Farewell, My Lovely, we've got our first true and perhaps our only true Bond-esque lair, our Ken Adam-designed Amthor's (laughs) Eagle Eerie. Yeah, I loved Amthor's house. And the sort of dark room with the pillars, as it's described, where Marlowe gets dragged and into, and uh, kind of beaten. And my number one micro space is, and we see it several times, so it's not from any one novel, but it's actually Marlowe's apartment. Apart- his apartment? Yeah. Okay. I, you like, went with his apartment. I went with okay. his apartment apart from cool. his house. Yeah, his house is only featured in two of these, but I like the apartment. I like the kind of chessboard that's always calling to him in the side, you know, the little fridge. I like what he's got going on there in that space. And I think while it isn't as good it isn't as gravitational maybe as some of these other places for for reading it's a constant uh and it kind of it, it calls to the character in a neat way and I, and I like that so yeah it's kind of like where he goes back to buffer his investigations and I, I love those moments as you know from our discussions I love those moments mm. where I can feel like I'm given a chance to breathe as a reader and I like that a lot in the apartment that's what the apartment is best for in my in my opinion yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, so environs, I mean, my number five was the agent's office in The Little Sister. Very oh, well described. One, yeah. Baloo's Definitely office. Definitely evoked his, Baloo's office, yeah, exactly. That was like, my honorable Very mention. well described. It, it's like you it's like you get almost like a tracking shot of the place That's right. like on the yeah. page. Mm-hmm. And the characters that inhabit it and stuff mm-hmm. with, the sec- with the redhead secretary. And then you have, you know, how the, the dialogue between her and Marlo. And then leading into, you know, the office with Baloo himself. And uh, yeah, like that was just very, uh, just leaped it off the page for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, stuck out as a well indictment of, of, the, of, of the Hollywood that Chandler was, uh, you know, lamenting about. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four is the Wade home, just as you described, uh, a great setting uh, with so much atmosphere and character to it that uh, even though it was like a very kind of bland domestic setting, there was a tinge of uh, foreboding to the whole atmosphere, right? Like yeah. this d- this idyllic kind of suburban home, there's like this awful darkness to it, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. My number three, it's uh, the gambling ship in uh, Farewell, mm-hmm. My Lovely. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That whole concept was so cool, like the hatches and the guards with the machine guns and going down in the upper decks and you see like the uh, the, the gambling rooms That's and everything and really the state good. room that Browning used to, to run. And uh, yeah, that was uh, very, uh, 
very exciting locale for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to her Ken Adam, uh, absolutely. Uh, Amthor, the psychic slayer. Yep. Um, that yep. was just a really interesting place, like very pulpy, but mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. it worked well with Chandler's writing. He managed to make it believable in, mm-hmm. in a way. So in a way, I, I, do, very, I do admit in a way. Yeah. Yeah. In a way it's, it's pulpy for mm-hmm. sure, but uh, it worked well and it, and it, uh, it popped in my head when I read it, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, my number one is your number one. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's Marlowe's apartment. Cool. Uh, nice. I love that. I love the, just the detail always, you know, going to him making coffee is making his small eggs and his little <laughs> breakfast nook, making his eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, then he has the chessboard as well. Uh, eventually he gets a TV in there as well, you know, on top That's of right, that, but, yeah. uh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. One of the locations we always come back to where all the action is, I would even put maybe Marlowe's office slash apartment as well, because those are locations that we always come back to that always feel like there's always stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. It's the center of Marlowe's energy. It's like where it's his inner layer. It's yeah. where like, you know, all his, uh, detective energies are, are, are honed and it's where he's the strongest, uh, in most cases. So yeah, it's his, it's his home yeah. turf. It's his home turf, exactly, exactly. Cool. All right. Well, uh, let's just finish up then, buddy, with the last couple of things. Let's talk about the supporting characters. Now, one of the greatest things about the Marlowe stories that I think people will enjoy if they haven't already enjoyed them is just the range and the sort of color of characters that Marlowe bounces off and that he interacts with. Uh, as you can experience with any series, any canon, there's lots of them. But here I've got just five and I haven't necessarily ranked them in any sort of one, two, three, four, five, but I, I've, I've listed five anyway. Uh, I'll start down the bottom of, of what I have with um, Deputy Lieutenant Christy French in The Little Sister. I really like French. Okay. I think he's got a jaded, yeah, but, French is great. A jaded but appropriate world view. I like the exchange he goes with and sort of the the off trust that he has with Marlowe. I I like that. And of course, he has a great speech towards the end of that story. Um, Number four, uh, she's underused in my my opinion. One of the uh, one of the things about the story I would like to have changed is um, Anne Reardon in Farewell, My Lovely. Oh, I really liked her, good. and I thought there could have been a more interesting stuff developed there with her being the daughter of a Bay City police detective. Linda Loring 1.0. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, in, you know, when we first met her, I felt like there was more to Lin, more to Anne than there was to Linda, you know? The way she saved Marlowe yes. and kind of gave her backstory as being the dog. she had Moxie. She had know, Moxie, like yeah. Is. She's really cool. And then, yeah. then Marlowe kind of gives her the cold shoulder, and I felt like that was a little rough, you know? Because she also yeah, seemed to be away, a bit sexist, away. absolutely. And she seemed to me to be a girl who wouldn't kind of pine after him, even though she would have pursued a relationship. I didn't yeah, see her. Yeah, she called him out on his bullshit. She called him out. Exactly. And I like that. And I think yeah. that to have that sort of an agency and that sort of a freshness, it would have been nice to see more. Um, my number three, uh, I really liked Detective Galbraith. We saw him at his best and at his, his worst here in this story with Farewell, My Lovely, because at first, you yes. know, he's the guy, he's the guy, he's the Hemingway character who's kind of hammering on him. And then afterwards, they have this wonderful chat where he's driving Marlowe around and giving him little bits of information. And they have that great exchange about moral rearmament, which I really, really liked. Yes. You know, about how you can give people chances and, you know, the reason why we seem to be crooked cops when we're not crooked cops, you know, we're just trying to put food on the table. I really liked his, his sort of searchlight through the crookedness of society. It's different to Marlowe's, but I liked it all the same. My number two, 
uh, from The Lady in the Lake with Sheriff Patton. I thought he was one of the great, mm-hmm. great characters in the series. And my number one, who's my favorite character, I think, from from the supporting range of characters. Always fun to meet, always fun to listen to, and you know he's clever. It's Bernie Oles. He was in The Big Sleep mm-hmm. and The Long Goodbye. So those are my five. What about you? Yeah, uh, I think ours is similar, but mm-hmm. uh, we'll see uh, how you think about how mine turns out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my number five is Miss Fromset from <laughs> The Lady in the Lake. Nice one. Uh, very enigmatic female character yeah, she who you is. just wanted to learn more and more about, you know? Mm-hmm. She was her own character in that story. Like, her arc isn't significant, but she stands out as an interesting character that you want to learn more about. Uh, you're not quite sure, is she into Kingsley or not? Or is she just kind yeah. of using that for her mm-hmm. own... Ref- like, I guess she's a statement of someone that Chandler might have encountered in his own job at Dabney Oil, mm-hmm. someone who was moving up through the company chain, through the managers. You could look at it in that cynical fashion. But she also seemed like someone who knew what she was doing as well. Yes. She was being an I executive at yeah. a time when being a, an executive for a woman at that time, mm-hmm. where you had to maybe navigate it in that fashion, yeah. right? Good one. What's so your number four? I could see her like 10 years later or six or 20 years later owning the company or something like that, mm-hmm, right? So mm-hmm. my number four is my favorite, uh, well, one of my favorite police uh, characters is Alessandro from uh, yeah. from the from playback, actually. He was great. He was really good. And he would have almost made my list. But for the fact that his stage time is just so brief. And I would I love to have seen him in a bigger story because it's so nice to see Marlo working happily with a police officer. He was a bright light in a rather, I don't know, uh, mediocre affair, in my opinion. Yeah, totally. Uh, Number three is Sheriff Patton from Lady in the Lake. Uh, Mm -hmm, Also mm -hmm. a great uh, rural character portrayal. Uh, Chandler doesn't make him look dumb. Chandler doesn't make him look too sophisticated. He's very believable. He's someone, you know, who you could tell is probably smarter than what he lets on, but it works for his job to be that way because he is a political figure. You know that he's running for sheriff all the time and manages to stay in power as sheriff. So you know he's someone not to mess with. But he comes off as a very avuncular character at the same time. Yeah, totally. Uh, and a good and a, and a good man on top of that. So I, I I like Patton a lot, and he's the quickest gun in uh, in the West in terms of uh, Ch- Ch- Chandler's West, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, number two, I got uh, the. I guess you could say the. I guess I guess you could say you know like the uh, the the big payoff of playback was Linda Loring. Mm. I liked mm. her character in The Long Goodbye. She was really interesting. She told Marlo, you know, she wasn't afraid to tell Marlo what she felt about him. Mm-hmm. She was honest with him. Uh, they have a very compassionate relationship. She brought out the best in Marlo. I, I think she was one of the best supporting characters, mm-hmm. and I think she's one that you really can't ignore. But I can understand why you would put her yeah. on honorable mention yeah. or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can't ignore her. You're right because she she did really affect Marlo. But I, I feel like as though the way she was introduced was kind of shoehorned in there. The way they met at the bar, yeah. at the same bar that her bro- you know her brother in law hung around. I thought that was a bit. Yeah. Well, anyway, I agree. Yeah. In uh, in in sweeps in 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 a novel sweeps though, where you have the same character in, in a number of stories mm-hmm. carrying through as uh, what you would think as an arc yeah. or whatnot. Uh, uh, supporting characters that are recur are very important to me. Uh-huh. And uh, my number one has to be Bernie Oles. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Cool. Nice one. Yeah. All right, buddy. Well, our, that, I mean, that, that's us having uh, gone through our favorites of the pipes. What about uh, any scenes from the series that stand out to you? I mean, there's no need to rank these, but I, I have selected just a couple of highlights. We, we can just sort of spitball this one just for a couple of minutes mm. because I'm... Um, uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, one of the things I really liked 
is that scene in The Long Goodbye where Menendez and Chica Agostina visit Marlo in his office and they try to sort of, you know, throw him around. Bully him. But he yeah. he doesn't just stand up for himself. He throws back. And I like that a he lot. Does. I really, really yeah, like that like, scene. Like I said, his office, he's like, he feels empowered mm-hmm, there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because that's where he does his best thinking, where he pokes his pipe, yeah. where it's he his sees his clients, you know what I mean? World. He he tells people what he, you're in my office, so I tell you exactly what I feel. That's right. I don't have to react to you, you react to me. That's right, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I thought that that scene did that really well. What did you think, Josh, uh, and I really like this part of, of Farewell, My Lovely. I loved that scene at the start where Marlo goes to visit Jesse Florian in her house mm. and you got the nose yes. the nosy neighbor who he kind of calls out a little bit later on in the story and the and the yeah, gin good scene. And, and the kind of the you know the radio playing and her drunkenness and i i love that whole scene i mean I, I from from the moment the chapter starts and he steps out of the car to when he leaves the home you know i thought that uh, when he brings yeah. the bottle in to get her, right. get her yeah. talking and stuff yeah. like that it's all, all those yeah. ploys that he uses yeah because he knows they'll work really good mm. Uh, trying to think of another good scene too. I love the scene in Lady in the Lake. I mean, it's so foreboding, but when they yeah. discover uh, Muriel Chess's mm-hmm, body, mm-hmm. well, sorry, Crystal Kingsley's Crystal body. Kingsley's body. Uh, yeah. yeah, like just how they discovered it. Like, what's that down there on the bottom of, of the lake, right? Mm-hmm, and just how mm-hmm. they or, uh, they use the rock to like bring things That's up. That's right, and yeah. Even before that, like just the, just, just the interview with like Bill Chess and the awkward, how Bill was like totally, you know, sauced mm-hmm, and... Mm-hmm. He couldn't really, make, and he kept like going emotionally, jumping from one end of the spectrum to the other against Mar- Marlo the whole time, and Marlo, you know, understanding what what he's going through, mm-hmm. and you know, and being very patient with them. Yeah. you know what I mean. And very much so. Yeah, uh, sympathize. And then leading and, up yeah. to, to that moment, and where Bill is totally destroyed by the end of that moment, mm-hmm. it was just it was just a great sequence as a whole, and uh, great writing as in in that genre. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, it's not on my list, but I also like, for the same reasons, that sort of, that, that, well, no, not the same reasons, but I also like that scene in Marlowe's office where Terry Lennox comes back, you know, at the end. And oh, yeah. they have that sort of man to man. And Terry still has the, the myopic uh, approach to say, well, can we not just go get a drink? Nobody will recognize me. And Marlowe's like, man, you missed the whole fucking point. Like, you don't get this. You're not the same person. You can't drag me through what you dragged me through. Like, you know, it's as close, yeah. it's as, close as he comes what to like- What Marlo went through for that guy. Yeah, it's as close, it's, that's right, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's so bittersweet. Yeah, yeah it's it perfect, uh, that, that scene. What'd you make uh, of another the, great? Sorry, go on. I was going to say the scene in the the garage in the big sleep too with with yeah. with, with Canino yeah. and uh, that, that that whole sequence and, and just in the rain and mm-hmm. the atmosphere mm-hmm. of the car the tire breaking and then stopping the car and totally. going into there because you know that Merle's on the way to the place so of course his tire breaks right conveniently and then of course he realizes that he stumbled upon like the I guess you could say like ground zero for that whole investigation is right in that garage right so. That was a very tense scene, action-packed, exciting. Chandler writes action sequences, mm-hmm. suspense sequences really good. He does. So I, I just knew from that point on that I, that would be one part of his novels that I would enjoy going yeah. g- going forward in. And they're memorable because there aren't really that many of them. If you think of it, there's lots of action in the series, but there's not like kind of storyboarded sequences, if, if I can use that yeah, expression. They're not set. they're not set pieces, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah, like they're not going like, okay, so this is the sequence where like, uh, this is the chase sequence where mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all those sequences come out organically in Chandler's mm-hmm. writing. That's right. Yeah. 
Uh, what do you make of the scene at Geiger's house in the big sleep? You know, where um, oh, where Marlowe intercepts... First, our first crime scene, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is, in a way, that first crime scene, as you say, and it's uh, it's really memorable. Yeah, just the imagery of, like, Carmen, you know, like, uh, you know, without any clothes mm-hmm. and... The camera and Geiger dead on the ground. Just a visual march of, of hearing the gunshots, of seeing the flashes in the window, uh-huh, uh-huh. and then it just and again, just the the imagery with there was just so well done. And it's like again, it's one of the things that pulls you into Chandler, where you can just visualize it. He had such a great cinematic language in his writing, and mm-hmm. I can see how he why he was a good screenwriter as well when it, for the products that he did get uh, produced. Mm-hmm. I also enjoyed as a, I think we've already called this one out, buddy, Amthor's home, like that entire, that entire scene, you know, I think it plays out, as you said, pulpy, and it does kind of play a pulpy, but uh, it's, it's really good. And I did like that scene in The Long Goodbye, where we've got uh, Marlowe traveling to the doctors and, you know, going through all the V doctors, he finds the, you know, the legit one, he finds the dope one, and he finds Veringer, who's, you know, kind of shady and on his way out. But um, I liked that quite a bit too. Anyway, I mean, that's just some of the favorite scenes. Yeah, yeah. so many good scenes. So many yeah. good scenes, yeah. Well, look, man, yeah. at, at, the risk of, um, at the risk of wrapping a big, neat bow on, on it, let's, let's just, without saying anything about them, because we've got episodes now, and posterity can enjoy that. Where we have that. talked, yeah. exactly. Let's just go from seven to one, our final novel rankings. Now, keeping in mind, as we issued last episode, we didn't read deliberately. We didn't read Poodle Springs. Uh, We might revisit that later. But for our purposes, the canon is these seven novels. So let's go. Number seven, I went playback. Seven is playback for me as well. Number six, I went The Little Sister. Same for me as well. Oh, number five, you go. The Big Sleep. I went to Big Sleep as well. I was surprised mm-hmm. to see that low on your list. Number four for you. The High Window. Lady in the Lake. Okay. I think I know what your number three is going to be. Number three? The High Window. The Lady in the Lake for me. All right. Number two, Farewell, My Lovely. Oh, I had The Long Goodbye as my number two. Ah, and I had The Long Goodbye as my number one. So Farewell, My Lovely is your favorite Chandler story. After thinking about it, uh, deliber- long deliberation, absolutely. Uh, the Long Goodbye is a great, fantastic novel. Um, and I love the character of Marlowe, where he's developed and got to that point. But Farewell, My Lovely, to me, is like the... If you want to read a Philip Marlowe story outside of just reading like a Chandler mystery novel, like, for example, The Lady in the Lake, uh, Farewell, My Lovely is is one of the best uh, uh, introductions to Marlowe I think you could get. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the big sleep all already off the off the pot so yeah. therefore you know that chandler's yeah, the primordial you know, that the primordial marlow the primordial <laughs> ooze exactly yeah. so you know now that the that it's not the fish has now become like a newt and it's on the beach now that's right to continue the metaphor mm-hmm. so and now it becomes this reptile uh by farewell my lovely where he, he knows what he wants to do with the character now he can get into setting. He can mm-hmm. get into descriptions of characters and locales. Uh, he can write his themes in there a lot uh, more subtly. Uh, he can introduce new elements and get into Marlowe's head a bit more as well because we know him a little bit. Uh, and you can also still write a really kind of formulaic yet exciting Indiana Jones-like adventure, mm-hmm. I guess, you, as you said, mm-hmm. uh, in The Long Goodbye. The Long Goodbye is like taking into Hemingway territory, if you catch my drift. Yeah, it's more of a character piece. Yeah, I understand exactly what you mean. 
Um, okay, well, look, man, this has been really great. I've enjoyed doing this series. It's taken up a lot of our time, a lot of our reading time, and a lot of our energies, um, but it's been great, and I feel as though lighting the pipes as a show, as a podcast, I feel as though we've really stretched our legs here with this one. Now that we've finished this deep dive, our second deep dive of our show so far, we want to share with listeners our plans for the future. And what we've got coming yeah. up next is really, really exciting because we've decided... It really is. We've decided, um, everybody, that what we're going to do, instead of doing another deep dive in a series, is we're going to look at a survey of crime fiction from a number of different series. So we're going to look into some Ian Rankin Rebus novels. We're going to look at some Lindsay Davis Falco stories. We're going to look at John Buchan's The 39 Steps. We're going to look at a Len Dighton book. We're going to do a Bosch mystery by my Michael Collins. We're, Edgar Allan Poe. We're going to look at some Poe. We're going to do some Patricia Highsmith. We're going to even tackle some of the, um, what's his name, Sam Spade stories, you know, that, that Hamlet did. And we've got some surprises as well. So we're not going to share it all with you. But essentially, what, what we're looking to do is, is just test the waters of a number of different popular stories. So I guess it's more of a crime survey than a series, if you think of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a mystery novel series. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And most imminently, we've got, uh, we're, and we're going to start that off with our next episode, which is going to be on Lindsay Davis's The Silver Pigs. Yeah. Yeah, we're going away from Los Angeles in this one, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Although, possibly is just as decadent. <laughs> possibly, yeah. <laughs> Maybe even yeah. more so. <laughs> and I've already I've already made a good cut into that story, and I've started taking some pretty interesting notes on it. And uh, we're, oh, we're going to keep up our PIPES acronym, and we're going to keep our plot summaries and any sort of like, you know, publication information going like we did with the home stories and with these stories. And after, yes. after, after that, we're going to explore uh, one of Stephen King's more recent stories called Later, which, of course, he, he's written in the crime vein. A couple of different stories now, Joyland and Later is his most recent. And so we're going to review that one as well. And that's going to get us started on, on our next adventure through Light in the Pipes, which is really going to be, I guess, what, 12 or 14 episode series on just doing a crime survey of, of literature. Yeah, absolutely. It'll it's, be fun. Uh, it's like a pick and choose or, you know... A pick and uh, mix. The word. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a cornucopia of noir, I guess you could say. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to it, pal. Um, but I think we've earned ourselves a couple of weeks break here now. Oh, I should say, though, we're also going to have a couple of film tie-in episodes with uh, our next series, too, aren't we? That's right. Yeah, and we'll say more about that when we sit down to talk about Lindsay Davis's The Silver Pigs. And just a reminder, everybody, uh, if you're interested in the world of James Bond, well, you can check us out uh, on our other podcast, Bond by Numbers, which we share with our friend Jeff Chapman. Uh, the three of us go through and have been for a couple of years now going through the world of James Bond, not just the films, not just the books, but the figures and all sorts of fun. So if you've enjoyed, uh, if you enjoy that side of the entertainment industry, then come on over and join us there. Yeah, we have some uh, good fun, good talks, and uh, we try to make things really different with the topics, too, like something that you wouldn't expect, and yeah. especially this particular season as well. We got some really cool ideas. Yeah, we got some good stuff. So look, pal, any parting words before we say goodbye? Uh, no, uh, just just that uh, thanks for everyone uh, who mm -hmm. uh, listened to our Chandler podcast and our Sherlock Holmes from before. Uh, doing the Chandler sweep for Marlowe was really exciting. It was really fun. I definitely found, you know, a new author to love. So mm -hmm. I hope you all did too, if you were reading along with us. And while, you know, we're not going to be doing deep dives in terms of uh, the next couple of episodes or the next season, mm -hmm. I should say, I think you'll, I think you'll like, you know, our our chock-a-block of, um, of detective fiction that we'll be presenting you. Yeah. Thanks very much for joining us on this journey, like Josh says. 
If you want to get in touch with us, you know you can reach us on the socials. And of course, uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com will get you to us. And thanks to those of you who have reached out and shared your thoughts and suggestions with us and uh, and kind comments. We really do appreciate it, as yeah. you know. And we, lo- we love sharing our, uh, our love of books with you guys. So it's been really fun lighting the pipes with you. And of course, Josh, with you. Of course, with you as well, Scott. Absolutely. All right, take care, pal. And we'll see you soon for our discussion of... The Silver Pigs. The, the Silver Pigs. In that respect, I'll give you a very fitting Ave. Ave, yes, yeah. Let's yeah. use those Latin exchanges. Well, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to exactly. go there. I'm just going to say goodbye. Fair enough. Goodbye. Cheers. Cheers.